not describable to the unredeemed, to come and to be of like mind, to enjoy uh, the fellowship of the saints around prayer time and around singing and now around the word and then later around the table. And so my prayer for you, of course, today as you've been preparing your hearts, as you uh, know that we're going to have communion today, that we come before the Lord with clean hearts and clean hands. And so it's our desire to do that today. So I pray as we go through the word, we'll spend some time in the word in our current study, and then we'll, we'll uh, take some time to celebrate at the table. So you can turn in your copy of God's Word, if you will, to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, if you've not been with us, we are continuing study through the pastoral epistles. We started in 1 Timothy, we'll go to 2 and Titus. The overall uh, title for these two these studies, 1 and 2 Timothy, instructions for the church, teaching, leading, and equipping, uh, summed up guidelines for public worship. And that's what we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3. In particular, as we've uh, arrived at 1 Timothy 4, 6, pursuing godliness and rejecting uh, bad doctrine. And so Paul continues to give Timothy instructions from the letter. We're going to read together and preserve our time today in the, the Word of God. So look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to pick up in verse 6, if you will, and then we will uh, read all the way through verse 16. Verse 6 says, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be good, a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine which you have been following. Verse 7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Look at verse 9. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this we labor and strive. Because we fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers, verse 11, prescribe and teach these things. And let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself an example to those who believe, verse 13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation. And teaching, verse 14, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands of the presbytery. Verse 15, take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Verse 16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure both salvation for yourself and for those who hear you. Let's stop right there. As we read this, it's very, I think, appropriate to imagine that in the first century, the letter arrives in Ephesus from Paul to Timothy for him to read and to discharge to the church. That's exactly what we have here, a letter which is just as relevant for the church today as it was in the first century. And so as we read through, we understand these instructions come to us directly from the Lord through the Apostle Paul, and so that helps us understand what has to be done in the church. And that has been our overall study and the theme of our study as we started in chapter 1. These are instructions that help us understand how the church is to function, who is to lead it, what their qualifications are to be, and those things that are to be excluded and included. And so we continue to look at those things. And as a review from last week, we were just back from a long break from the study. Paul's been instructing Timothy on false teachers and false teaching. And Paul corrects the course of the church 
by giving them a warning and exposing the source of all false teaching. And then he writes to Timothy in verse 6, and he says this. After he gets done talking about false teachers and false teaching and the source of all of those things, which is demon doctrine, he says, verse 6, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. A, a statement so full and just ready to be opened up. And Paul moves from illustrating the source of false doctrine to godly traits that need to be active in a faithful minister, pursuing godliness. And this instruction is very familiar to us. I'm reminded of our study out of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1, where Paul talks about himself and those who lead the church, and he says this, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So again, he uses the same word, servants of Christ, as he refers to himself and those who are leading the church. And, and in this case, moreover, it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Now, we took a lot of time with that, and we won't go back there again. You can catch that study up online. But we are called to be servants. We're called to be stewards, managing that which belongs to God. And I think that's the essence of what we see here, and that's the overall understanding as we look at First and Second Timothy and Titus. We're managing what belongs to God. We're managing what Christ came to establish and set up and get rolling to carry out the Great Commission. And so we're called to do it in a way that's going to bring honor to his name. And this is all through the epistles. So it's not just here. Just in this letter alone, we find important ideas in the requirements for women who serve in the church in a complementarian manner. Requirements for men who pray. They have to lift up holy hands and not be contentious if they're going to publicly pray in church. Requirements for elders who lead the church. Very strict requirements. That is a uh, the uh, standard of godliness that elders have to hold up for everyone. Requirements for deacons who serve the church, much the same way. A deacon has to have a standard of godliness, and Scripture prescribes it exactly, and that is that standard by which he's examined. We saw that these standards are the standard for godliness, not two different standards. That is, not one for those who lead, and then a different standard for those who don't lead. And here in our passage in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Hey, Timothy, uh, if you want to be qualified as a, here it is, good servant of Jesus Christ, in other words, doing what you should do and then doing the right job in a beautiful, noble way, which is how God designed the church to be led, then the first godly trait that should be visible and active in your ministry will be, and we saw last time, pointing out these things to the brethren. Just very simply referring to what's already been taught uh, up to this point. Everything Paul has been writing about concerning false teachers, appointing qualified leaders, and everything else he's been writing about in the letter, uh, Paul says to Timothy, if you're going to be a good servant of Jesus Christ, you're going to point out these things to the brethren. And he is to be then in constant duty that's the idea. We looked at this last time, pointing them out. That's a constant duty as a minister to the flock by pointing out biblical principles to help refute false doctrine. In other words, you have to teach people to be discerning. You have to teach them to think biblically and make biblical application of truth to what they see and experience. And beloved, this is basic to all qualified spiritual leadership. That's what qualifies to be, to be totally open. You don't get the title unless you're doing that. That's the idea. And that was principle number one, if you were keeping notes last time. As Paul focuses on true godliness, he tells Timothy, don't keep all this to yourself. 
Principle one, then, was a faithful minister will confront false teaching and constantly point out biblical principles. And all the things Paul's given Timothy are the example. But we're not limited to just these things because the Word of God is the source, and he uses the word servant here. And we looked at this last time. This is our word diakonos. It is referring to Timothy, obviously, uh, as a servant of the church. Now, he doesn't use word elder or pastor, which really is Paul's focus as he works through this uh, first couple of chapters. But we know that uh, this is Paul's focus, elder leadership, uh, pastoral oversight, but it becomes much more broad when he uses the term servant. And it's the one we just looked at as we looked at 1 Corinthians 4.1. He talks about himself in that manner too. And we know Paul was an overseer. We know Paul was an elder. But he says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ. That's the idea. So when he uses that word, it becomes more broad because uh, anyone who then is in charge of a ministry, anybody working in serving the church to build the kingdom from a leadership perspective then should take notice. And when this focus is weighed out as a primary emphasis then, that qualifies you, Paul says, to be considered a good servant, a faithful minister market of Jesus Christ. This is the kind of minister that Jesus thinks is great, in other words, from the backside, because there's a lot going on in the name of Jesus, but if it doesn't line up here, then we can be sure that Jesus doesn't think it's great, no matter how great we think it may be. And Paul flips the tables on false teachers because they're talking about denying themselves things and saying no to things, and he says, listen, you're talking about a spiritual diet that's misdirected. You think denying yourself makes you spiritual. Paul says, a constant diet of what's good for them that produces true godliness And spirituality is going to be a diet that feasts on and is informed by the Word of God. Because Christ makes you holy, His Word sanctifies you. Those are the things that we really need. And that's what Paul says is a qualified servant. He will be, she will be, in the complementary ministry of the church, constantly nourished on and of sound doctrine, which you've been following. And this is the part we didn't get to last time, but this is, I think, two things I think I want to point out as we move towards the table in just a few minutes. The first one is constantly nourished, and that's present passive participle, the Greek, and trepho. So in, in continually being fed by, what are they to be fed by? Because that's the question, isn't it? When people arrive at sanctuaries all across the United States and all around the world, they are supposed to be fed. What are they going to be fed? Because that's the idea and the difference between whether it's a qualified servant of Jesus Christ, a good servant, or one who isn't. So what are they to be fed by? Well, first one is the words of faith. We didn't look at this last time in depth, but I think it's important to see these two things. And that phrase, the words of faith, uh, the word the is there, a definite article. It's just referring to a biblical or scriptural writing. When the definite article is there, it's not just, genu- it's not just general. It's specifically talking about Biblical teaching, biblical scriptural writing. The words of the Christian faith is scripture. The body of Christian truth contained in the scripture. Now, you wouldn't know that in a number of past uh, churches that you step into because they never open the word of God, or if they do, it's a peripheral glancing blow at some passage, and they never get into the meaning, and they never make sure that you understand what it is, and it's just generalities and trying to make you feel good and give you life hacks and, sh- and just little uh, sound bites. Okay, but here we see very clearly, constantly nourished, continually being fed by the words of faith. So the words of the Christian faith are Scripture. And so Paul is to deal, he tells Timothy to deal with the understanding and the interpretation and the application of the Word of God. 
And that's what Paul wants to say to Timothy at the end of verse 6. If you want to be a good minister, you're going to have to be nourished and nourish the church by words of the faith. And that just seems so basic to me. When I say that, it just means so, it's like obvious, right? So then people say, of course, except that's not how it is. Now, 50 years ago, perhaps the majority would be this. Now it's the exception because everybody's program directed, everybody's program led, everybody wants to do the cool thing, everybody wants to do the hip thing. People want to be remembered as a good speaker or a good orator. They want to be remembered as somebody special or uh, some kind of uh, uh, important person that you think about. It's just so basic. If you want to be a good servant of Jesus Christ, it's a continual process of self-feeding by reading and reading and reading and reading and inwardly digesting and meditating and dialoguing and mastering the content of the Word of God. That just seems so basic to me, but I think we needed to say it. If you're going to teach the church in any respect... I don't need to master the program. I, I don't, the scripture doesn't want you to master the Bible study itself. We're not looking for you to master the curriculum necessarily. You're supposed to be rightly dividing the word of God so that you are a workman who needs not to be, what's the last word? If you don't want to be ashamed in the end time when the Lord sits in judgment and says, okay, this is what you did, not for hell, but for award or judgment in the Bema Seed, you're going to have to be able to show that this is what you did. Not that you managed that, you managed that uh, devotional well and you understood every word of the devotional, the predigested part of the Bible that you read and you tried to teach to someone else, that you studied studied and you studied and you read and you meditated and you dialogued and you mastered the content of the word of God. What did it say? See? And servants of the church are called, mark this beloved, above and beyond all other elements of the ministry to be skilled in the study of the words of faith, which is the word of God. And mastering that will take a lifetime of study to begin to comprehend it. But each day to regard it as the, mark this, essence of our effectiveness. That is the essence of your effectiveness. To the extent that you've mastered that passage that you're going to teach in your small group or in your Sunday school class or in your children's church or you're in your VBS or whatever it is, to the extent you will be able to do that, you're going to have to regard the mastering of that passage as the essence of your effectiveness. Now, we say we're to master it, and we use that word very, very openly, but we'll never do it, but that's our pursuit. And the object is not just to be a good communicator and try to, try to make think, people think they heard something enjoyable, okay? I, that hits me a lot when I listen to some of these sermons I listen to online. People ask me, what kind of, I want to go to this church, will you, will you, will you tune in? I love that. Okay, people move away. Hey, we're thinking about this church or this church. We we listen and see. I love going on there and seeing. Sometimes I'm just so encouraged. I listen to the whole thing. It was, that was just food for the soul. And other times I'm just thinking, I think he was trying to make sure people heard something enjoyable. That is not our object, to make sure you heard something enjoyable. It's not your object as a small group teacher or, or a Sunday school teacher to make sure they heard something enjoyable. You need to make sure they understood the essence of the passage. And I've told you this many times before, when my sons were young, 
and they were, have been in uh, three different churches, Sunday school, some of them. We'd come home, and I would just say, what did you learn today in children's church or Sunday school? And they would tell me such and such a story. And then I, what, what would I ask? I would say, why was the story there, do you think? Why is the story there in the Bible? It's not so we can master Jonah, okay? And we can know all the steps of his journey. That's not why it's there. Abraham and his son and him sacrificing, nearly sacrificing his son. What, it's, it's good to know all that story, but why is it there? Why do you think the Lord wants us to understand it? Because that's the essence of the passage, see? And so as a Sunday school teacher, yes, you want to make sure you can tell the story and you want to know the story well, but they need to understand why it's there because there are thousands and tens of thousands of students who graduated from high school this year and they will never be back to church. And you know what? They can tell you all the Bible stories because they've heard them a hundred times, but nobody helped connect it to them. What was the essence of the story? Why do you think we understand this and why is it here? We're not to be, our effort is not to be just a good communicator. I'm not saying you should stand up here and not be a good communicator. Although, I would say if you study church history, you'll find some of the most dynamic and powerful preachers never even looked up. Or they spoke their sermon in monotone. You can check me on that. Some of the most powerful people who've ever preached and will preach today never looked up. But the Lord used them. Why? Because they were focusing on the words of faith and they understood them well. And they communicated that. We're not looking for guys who just think it's important that we heard something great, but someone who can defend and divide properly the word of the living God. We need to be able to think biblically and comprehend biblically and speak biblically. And that means we have to spend a massive portion of our time interacting with the text of Scripture. It's a treasure that's inexhaustible and demands a lifetime just to begin to understand the profound and rich and fullness of it. But listen, beloved, if you want to be a good counselor to your neighbor, and if you're a believer, you're going to get that opportunity. Or you're uh, somebody in your workplace or a family member. They're going to come to you when things are hard because they know you know the living God. You better know what the scripture says. Listen, you've got to teach them how to speak and think biblically about it. When people come and ask me, hey, Pastor, can we sit and talk about something? I don't have anything to give them from my own experience that's going to make any difference in their life. The only thing that I have is what the scripture says directly about what they're going through. And it addresses all those things because we have everything, uh, scripture says, for life and godliness. So if we have everything in here for life and godliness, then it's imperative for me to know those passages. Otherwise, I'm useless. I'm tickling their ears. It's powerless. They need to see if they really do want to know what the Word of God says. i got to be able to tell them that. And that's a little daunting, isn't it? When you think about all the things people could ask you, so just spend your life every single day reading the Word of God. And we encourage you to do that all the time, don't we? And give you resources to do that. And I constantly remind you, consider this another reminder. Every day, reading through the Word of God, try to read through the Word of God completely, cover to cover in a year, and start again. If you haven't done that yet in your life, I understand you're in the majority probably. Start today. 
version has a number of great yearly Bible reading calendars. We've got a trifold out there you can grab if you just like to read paper Bible. Stick it in there. It'll take you through in a year. Listen, meditate on it. Begin to think biblically. Ask the questions you need to ask. Why is this here? Why should I understand this? Why did the Lord include it? These are all very important questions. You focus on them. You begin to master these things. And then the Lord will begin to use you. He says, you're serious. All right, I can use this tool over here. Because now they begin to understand what I need people to understand. It's the idea that we're to, in Colossians 3.16, I say this often. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom. That's a parallel passage, beloved. How's it going to dwell richly within you? That means you're going to spend time meditating on it and studying it and reading it and reading it and reading it and thinking about it and trying to apply it and asking the correct questions. And that's profitable because 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. He's saying even Leviticus, even Leviticus. You know why Leviticus is important other than you to understand some things that were extremely important for, the, for the, that history of Israel? Is if you don't come away from anything else in Leviticus, you should come away with this. Sin is so sinful and terrible that it took that many things for the Lord to point out to his people. To just cover up their sin that they could function before the Lord. You, you, you can easily come away with that. And of course, the thanksgiving offerings and the praise offerings and those kinds of things are so rich. So yes, all scriptures, it's God-breathed. That's the word inspired. All scriptures, God-breathed. And it's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training. Now, if these things are true, and we know that they are, the issue is not how good a communicator you are. The issue is how well do you know the Word of God. And that's the problem in some churches today. They think people would rather be entertained instead of instructed. And so there's been a downward drift towards entertainment. Entertaining people instead of teaching people. And that's comfortable. You can fill a church to capacity if you make people comfortable. The words of faith are important. And secondly, he says, constantly nourish on sound doctrine. That's the second part. What's that? It just means that which Scripture affirms. So the first one, he says the words of faith, and then that's the scripture, and then the theology that comes out of the words of faith. That's the sound doctrine. So simply, that's the application of that biblical truth. That's the, if you will, the action required. That's the response. That's the security. That's the motivation. That's the the, uh, correction. That's the training. That's the righteousness. That's all of those things. See, the scripture are... The words the Lord's preserved for us to read and read and study and meditate and think about. And then the doctrine part is the application. So now that I have that, why did the Lord give it to us? What does the word say? What's the next part? 
What does it mean by what it says? And then our current one, how does that apply to me? Those are the three questions you're always asking as you work your way through the Word of God. What does the Word say? Right? What are the words themselves? Is it an illustration? Is it a- allegory? Is it is some kind of other uh, word phrase that helps us get a picture? What is it? What does it say? Now, what does it mean by what it says? Now, and the most important part in, in some respects, but you can't do it without the other two, how does that apply to me? What is my response to this? How does it apply to my life? How does it apply to the church? To thinking about some issue or whatever the words are addressing. And these two things are imperative for the health of the minister and which they minister to. Spurgeon said it this way, quote, you may go up into your pulpit, you may illustrate, you may explain and enforce the truth with mighty rhetoric, you may charm your hearers, you may hold them spellbound, but no eloquence, he says, of yours can raise the dead. Another voice has to be heard, end quote. That's it, isn't it? Another voice has to be heard besides yours. Your, your little sermonettes for Christianettes, your little, you know, word pictures and all that stuff, that's not going to do it. Raise the dead, certainly. In order for somebody to be transformed by the, by the working of Christ in his death and resurrection, somebody else's voice besides yours is going to have to be heard. But they're only going to hear that voice in as much as you use what the Word of God says to give your message. But not just raise the dead, how about equipping the saints for works of service? Or building up of the body of Christ, or attaining to the unity of the faith, or a mature man or a mature woman, or, or no longer be children easily fooled and tricked, or growing up in all aspects into him who's the head of Christ, or the proper working of each individual, or the growth of the body. Just to take Ephesians chapter 4 only, all of that, another voice beside yours is going to have to be heard. All Scripture is God breathes, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us. It's all God's voice that they have to hear. They have to hear God's voice. And that voice is only going to be heard through words of faith and sound doctrine. That's it. That's why Timothy says, if you want to be a good servant of Jesus Christ, if that's, how, that's, your, that's your goal, when you get all done, I just want to be a good servant, a steward, who is found, what did we read at the beginning? Faithful. If you're a steward, you're found faithful. To do what? This. Verse by verse, exegetical, expository preaching, comparing Scripture with Scripture. Every day, day in, day out, whether you feel like doing it, whether you don't feel like doing it, whether the congregation feels like hearing it, whether they don't feel like hearing it, it doesn't matter. Every day, repeat. Now, as we say all that, and Paul gives that specific instruction to Timothy, I don't want to take it in a negative light, because he says it's important to point out, you know, Paul's being very positive with Timothy, because He says in the next phrase, which you have been following. And I love that. See, and and you can be encouraged that way too. Because I know many of you who teach, you are doing this. This is your emphasis. And you do labor over the scriptures. And for that, I am so grateful. We have so many men. And I've uh, thanked the Lord over and over privately and publicly. We have so many men who are qualified to stand here and teach you. And I am so blessed when I'm in town. And I'm sitting right there. I'm being encouraged. I'm being fed. I'm being instructed, reproved, corrected. All of that. See, because the Lord works through those men too. And our ladies, they, they, have, they have a number of things that go on throughout the month. And, and one time a year, they have a big, uh, a big retreat. And listen, I know that they labor over the scriptures. And I know the ladies who teach there do that diligently. And so those ladies come out and they are trained, instructed, encouraged, corrected. Because they've spent much time going over the passages. 
So Paul says, if you want to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on words of faith and doctrine, he says, which you've been following. And I love this. There's this, there's this history here, 2 Timothy 1.5. Paul says, I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, as he talks to Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure that is in you as well. There's a rich, sincere faith passed down from parents to child. Established by family. Paul acknowledges this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. He says that from childhood, you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. From childhood, you've known these things. So somebody took time, right? Somebody took time that when they walked in the way and they sat in the way and they went to sleep and they rose up, and whatever it was, on the gate and on the door, and all those things we talk about in our childbearing class, listen, that's what they did. And then it says in 2 Timothy 3.10, Now you followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my perseverance. So model it, teach it, illustrate it, apply it constantly over and over. And then now he's serving as an overseer. And Paul says with all confidence in 2 Timothy 2.2, The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You've sat under my teaching. You had a long history of being under your parents. And now you're here and now you're leading the church. And I'm passing these things on to you. Pass them on to faithful men and keep this whole thing going. So from the time Timothy was a small child, all through his life, he's being taught the Word of God. And, and that's a good parenting model. That's not the emphasis here, but that's a good parenting model. Model it. Teach it. Illustrate it. Apply it. Let them see you reading the Bible. Not because you want them to see you reading the Bible as if that's a reward in itself, but because you spend enough time reading it that eventually they're going to see you doing it. And then you're passing those things down to your kids and you're modeling them and you're teaching them and you're illustrating it and so that they at some point will get to the point where they can give it out too, see? Paul says that's what you're already doing. You've closely followed it. Now he says you must be continually nourished by that same Christian truth revealed in God's word. You've been fed it. It's been modeled to you. Now you've got to take that on yourself, see? And where our sons were young, I would go in every night, four sons, every night, and read the Bible with each of them and pray with each of them every night. Parents are thinking, man, nighttime is rough, right? You got little ones. I mean, that's like, when you get all done, you high five your wife like, whew, everybody's in bed, asleep, everybody had a drink, nobody has to go to the bathroom. Woo! Victory, right? It's only 9.47. We still got, what, 20 minutes before we're both out ourselves. Everybody knows this, see? But this is a worthwhile investment. Take time. Start earlier. Start earlier getting them in. You, you make this an exciting time, which it is. They'll look forward to it, man. They'll go through bath time a lot faster where they know dad's getting in bed and dad's going to be reading. And dad's going to be praying. If you haven't started that yet, I mean, if they're, you know, if they're 18, don't do it now, all right? Weird. But if they're little still, you know, start. This is the foundation for them to desire the Word of God and to love it and to meditate on it and someday being nourished by it so they can give it out to their own family and to whatever responsibility the Lord gives them, see? Those are sweet memories for me. You closely followed what he told Timothy. Now he says you got to be continually nourished. And that was our principle number two. And I filled in a bunch of stuff there we didn't have time for last time. 
Number two, true godliness in a faithful teacher is found in a diet constantly nourished on the Word of God. Obviously, just so obvious, right? But we got to say it. If you want the congregation to be healthy, put your focus on being in the Word yourself, and then you're going to be able to make the correct application, and so you'll have something to say. And that's one of the major problems in the modern church. Lots of preachers want to be hip. They want to be cool. They want to be a celebrity. They want people to think well of them and have quick fixes and life hacks and banal, trivial self-help. So no power in that. And that's not what you're supposed to do. And don't expect as a preacher or a teacher, if that's what you're doing, that the Lord's going to say, hey, good job. Okay, he's not. You have one audience. I tell all young preachers, when you get up here, you're nervous. You've got a lot to say, but you're really, really, you're letting the fear of man encroach on that. And the fear of man brings a snare. So you got to get rid of the fear of man because you only have one audience. Guess who it is? The one who penned the word of God. He's listening to you teach it. That's the only one you have to, that's the only person you have to be approved. Okay. And I've told people this, preachers this over and over again. Listen, somebody may come up to you and say, that was a really good message. Pat you on the back. And what you may find out, if you, if you could see into their mind, the things that they really liked about it are the things that you didn't want to do, okay? Like, they thought you were a really good speaker, like you made good eye contact, and you walked around the stage, and you were really entertaining. And like, all those things weren't boxes that I needed to check off, right? And then the other side, you may have somebody say, I hated that. I, I've had people come up after a sermon. You said the word for 17 times. Like, first thing I said was, I am so sorry that that was so distracting that the all you heard. They didn't like it, okay? Or they just say, you know, why don't you make a point once in a while? You could keep us interested if we, you made a point. I said, but you may find in the negative, in the negative, the very things you wanted to make sure you got across. You weren't going to be a man pleaser. You were going to teach through the Word of God, right? I've had people say, you are, you spend too much time in the Bible. I've heard that like a dozen times in 31 years. You spend too much time and too much emphasis on the Bible, and I was like, I don't really know what else I'm supposed to give you. I don't have enough life experience for hundreds of people to come away with something good that they can take home and put to work. Besides, there's no power there. I could tell you three ways to live and 150 ways not to do it. I mean, that, that's all I could give you. Or I can give you the Word of God and allow the Holy Spirit who resides in you, put it to work in you, and make application like you should. See, And those are things that are so important, beloved. And so... Every person who aspires to ministry, who serves faithfully, every young man or who aspires to the office of elder or maybe goes to college or seminary with a view to ministry, you know, everyone who seeks to serve Christ and leadership in the church in a small group or go on a mission field, everybody who oversees in any capacity of responsibility over the flock of God has to interact with this particular portion of Scripture and these great truths and, in a sense, lay these things down as the official measurement for whether or not you measured up. There it is. Okay? That's the official measurement. And we're going to see this next time when you you put all this together. The true measurement, verse 10 says, for it is for this we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. We fixed our hope not on whether or not you liked it, not on whether or not you remember me, not on not you think I'm great or you remember something I said. Not that. We, we don't labor and strive so people will say you're awesome or whatever or so that we can look back and say I've got a really, you know, long ministry or whatever. We, we fix our hope. We labor and we strive because we fixed our hope on the living God. One audience, Jesus. That's the only audience you have to worry about. 
Not anybody else. The one who wrote it is listening. He's the one you serve. It's the reason why you serve. And that's the whole thing. And we fixed our hope on him. He's the savior of all men, especially of believers. And we can't have any higher hope of pleasing anybody else than that. Sproul's noted for saying this, R.C. Sproul. Quote, the greatest weaknesses in the church today is that the servants of God keep looking over their shoulder for the approval of men, end quote. That's the greatest weakness. You're looking for the approval of men, and that's the weakness in the church, in the pulpit. And that can certainly be the issue when the lines of measurement for an approved servant are not clear in your mind. And I think that as we think about it, we're going to move down to the table. I think as we think about the qualifications of those who lead, I think as we look at this, I'm just going to make this last application. Maybe this is helpful to you. Maybe this will help guide your thoughts. But it seems fairly apparent that those who minister are often evaluated on the basis of the wrong criteria. Did you catch that? As we look at this passage, I think as we think about those who minister, I think the wrong criteria pretty much is used. Wouldn't you agree? Typically, the effectiveness of a pastor is usually evaluated on the size of the ministry or the reputation or the education. Sometimes ministers are praised because of their popularity or building program or their organizational skills or their oratory skills or radio ministry or whatever it happens to be. But beloved, I would just say to you this, as we think about those things, and we've got a lot more to look at next, next time, Lord willing. But as we recall the things we've seen so far, none of those things are mentioned. None of them. They are invalid from a biblical sense. And you come to the real criteria by which a, a man of God must be evaluated when you look at these texts. And, and this text here is not isolated. It really reframes for us and restates things that have been laid out for us all through the epistles of the New Testament. I remember Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 5, he said, um, I will not boast except in regard to my weakness, for if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I'll be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears to be in me. And, and those are the things that are the most important things. Paul, Paul wasn't looking for a degree, so somebody would think more of him because he had it, you see? That's anathema to me. A terminal degree so people will respect you more. I, listen, I don't want any respect connected to anything I can accomplish academically, okay? I just want you to, I mean, I want to be able to communicate the Word of God to you in a clear and concise way. It's not education. It's not accomplishments in 2 Timothy, uh, Corinthians 12.5. It wasn't reputation. The key phrase here, you shall be a good minister of Christ. That's what Paul wanted Timothy to be, and that's how he told him to be. And gave him the ways he could do that. We're going to see more of that next time. All right, let's pray, and we're going to begin to our time in the, around the table. In the next 10 minutes, we'll uh, remember the Lord, his death, and, and his resurrection until he comes. It'll be a blessing to us. So would you bow with me if you would? Lord, we thank you today for the blessings of being in your word. We thank you today for its clarity. We thank you for the joy it is as we read it, how it resonates in our own hearts and, and makes our heart 
just really be filled to overflowing the joy that it brings to us. We thank you today that we can follow up the time of worship around your word because that's really what it is, a time where we can um, enjoy the rich words from your word that nourish us and correct our thinking and instruct and reprove and correct and teach us. And we can worship you that way. We can worship you even when we're found wrong, when the word reveals to us that we've been doing it wrong and thinking wrong. Uh, what a joy it is then to know that you've placed it there for that very purpose. When Paul says, such were some of you, it's to remind us that we used to be this way, but we should be this way no longer. When he says, be not conformed to the world, the tendency for us is to be conformed to the world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What a joy it is to know that, Father, you love us enough to, to see us conform to the image of your Son, to the very fullness, even to the maturity of Christ himself. That's your goal. Our dreams for ourselves are way under that. We don't even think and in those terms many times. We're so concerned with praying so small that just help us build our kingdom here and, that, and we'll be successful and have a good day. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with seeking you as we do the, the things here because you own all things. You give it to whoever you wish. And, and certainly having a good day and, and being, having, being enjoyable, that, that's certainly part of it. But so is, so is trial, so is difficult times, so is hardship. And Father, I pray that we'll be conformed by all those things. And, and mostly, Father, as we come here, remember your de uh, the death of your son and his burial and his resurrection until he comes, that that too will be a time of renewal, a time of confession, repentance, and a time where we can come away feeling filled with joy because of all your goodness to us. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said. It's a time where we're going to come around the table. It's a time for believers, some, those who have a relationship with Christ through repentant faith. So I would encourage you, if that's not where you are, if you've come with a friend or maybe it's your first time here with us, realize that the table is for those who believe. But if you don't understand that relationship with Christ, if you've not come in repentant faith to Him for salvation, please don't leave without letting me know that. It would be my great joy to talk to you and show you how you can come to a relationship with Christ. But this is time for believers to come together to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ until he comes again. And we do this uh, fairly often throughout the year, a joy to renew our, our communion with him by confession of sin and, and repentance and, and lifting up hearts that are so grateful for Christ's payment. And so that's what we're about to do. And Jesus set this up, and we've studied all this so completely, and so I won't do this again, but in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 17, we talked, we're coming up to the time of Christ's passion, and verse 17 says, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, what do you want us, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go to a city, to a certain man, and say to him, your teacher says, my time is near. I'm to keep the Passover at your home with my disciples. And so the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. And when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, Jesus took some bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat. This is my body. And then when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he said to them, drink from it, all of you. They are to follow the Lord's instruction and remember all the reasons why he's doing this. And so that's what we want to do. We, we just very, very simply here, we want to look at what happened and look at what our response is supposed to be and come away from the table with the benefit that the Lord wants us to have, okay, very, very simply. And so Jesus is doing all this. And of course, they've celebrated the Passover 
probably dozens and dozens of times as they re reach the age of accountability. They, they're very familiar with all the steps, and all of a sudden, uh, he is um, talking about this, and he's breaking the bread, and he's, and he's pouring the juice, and then he says, this is my body, and this is my blood, and now they got everybody's attention because nobody's ever said that before. They've had this Seder dinner many times, but nobody's ever said, this is my body, and this is my blood. That gets everybody's attention, and of course, Jesus is going to go on and die and rise, and they're going to begin to understand all this. And Paul gives us some instructions to the church, still valid for today, as he's come to understand all of this meaning and how important it is for the church to come and, and why it's reminding us of, of Christ's body and the blood. And, and, and so we're going to read some of this. This is the standard that God has set. These are elements to help us remember uh, what it costs to call to our conscious mind uh, the, all that Christ did and said. And as we think about it, you know, the side of the, of the bread and the side of the juice, uh, really emblems of Christ's body and his blood, uh, remind us of how sinful sin must be if nothing less than the death of the Son of God could make satisfaction for it. So as you come today, you think about that. You think about how sinful sin must be. That's our reminder, okay? It's been paid for, and he's risen. And he sits forever at the right hand of Father, making intercession for you. And someday he's going to come back. But this, this reminds us of how sinful sin is. If it took nothing less than the Son of God to make satisfaction for it. Okay? So come there to that threshold as we get ready to pray. And we're going to pray in just a minute. And think those thoughts in your mind as we come here. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27, this would be read before the time that we spend around the table. It was read uh, of course, in Corinth for them. They were having some trouble with each other and they were having some, uh, some sin issues and some harbored sin issues and coming to the table in an unworthy manner. And I'll let you hear it. It says, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, so we know we're talking about this time, okay? The time of the church. In an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So that should make us set up and take notice. There's a way to take this and not receive the blessing. Instead, take it and be unworthy of it. It's possible to come as a believer and take these elements and not be worthy to take them. So what's the question? All right, well, let's see. A man has to examine himself, and in so doing, he's to eat of the bread and drink the cup. So there's going to be some examination going on, and we're going to take some time with that in just a minute. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. That's the only part of us that's not glorified, right? It's the only part that's not ready for heaven, this, this body. That's where sin finds its beachhead. This is where we have uh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and boastful pride of life. This is the problem we have. We have it with the body. So it's not yet ready to be in heaven. A glorified body will be, but this one isn't. And this is where we find all those things that are in our mind acting out in ourself. Okay? So these are things that have to do with things we do. And for this reason, he says, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord, so we will not be condemned along with the world. So there's some circumstances here that have to do with harbored sin, with division here in, in Corinth that had to do with division and selfishness and discord and greed and insensitivity and those kinds of things share in the sins of those who crucify the Lord. We don't want to do that. So coming to the table in an unworthy manner is going to incur not blessing, but judgment. And the type of judgment is, it says, some are weak, some are sick, and a number sleep. That's euphemistic of being dead. So the Lord said finally to some of them, all right, you're going to come and do this enough times, and pretty soon uh, my grace to allow you to continue to repent is going to expire, and I'm going to just take you to be with myself. 
You can only betray my name so many times. You're going to become unworthy so many times. I'm going to make you weak. I'm going to make you sick. Until you repent, I may take you home. That's the issue. That's how serious it is. So judging the body rightly then, just to make correctly evaluate your actions, correctly evaluate the sinfulness, correctly evaluate your weak, take a look. Let the Holy Spirit help you and do that. Things that harm fellowship were in view here. Certainly, though, God seriously expects discernment, and so that's what we want to have. So what I'd like to do, we're going to pass out the bread element. We're going to take some time, and we're going to pray over that element, and then uh, we'll take it. It says, speaking of Jesus, 
He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised, and we did not esteem him, and surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, and crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his stripes we're healed. All of us, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was depressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to slaughter, like a sheep that's silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth, and by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he'd done no violence, nor were there any deceit in his mouth. Would you pray with me? Father, today we come before you and we desire very much to have the benefit of close communion. Tell us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's how we came to faith to begin with, repentant, belief. It's how we remain clean before you, seeing our sin and asking your forgiveness. And so, Father, I pray to reveal it to us now. We don't want to come in an unworthy manner. Obviously, uh, Corinthians is written for a specific purpose to help us not uh, be judged, but instead be blessed. And so it's our desire to do that. We know you're holy. You have the right to deal with us any way you wish and to deal with our sin any way you wish, and you'd be just in doing it. And even Paul said that in judgment, when we have to be chastened, we can know with full assurance that we're loved because we're sons and daughters who you're correcting. So, Father, today we spend some time in silence as we examine our own hearts, that you make clear those things that we can confess before you. I pray, pray very much that you have free reign by your Holy Spirit in our own life to root out those things which are perhaps camouflaged and certainly uncamouflaged things, how we spent our time, what we said, thought about those kinds of things throughout the course of this week and this month. Father, I pray not only will we confess those things, but I do them no longer. Father, thank you for your broken body. We're so grateful. It seems congruous for us to say that. But apart from it, we would not be healed. And so, Lord, we're grateful for the death of your son. Thank you for sending him. Thank you that it helps us understand sin is so utterly sinful that it took your own son to make satisfaction for it. And, Father, we are not ashamed to let men know that we derive our, all of our comfort, all of our comfort, from the atoning work of Christ and for his substitution on the cross. All of our comfort, all of our hope. We give you praise for all of that and thank you in Jesus' name. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Paul says, I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed 
took bread, and when he had broken it and given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You can take the bread element. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, 
The Lord was pleased to crush him. Gives you just a picture of the Lord's desire to redeem you, putting him to grief if he would render himself a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he'll see it and be satisfied, and by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquity. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he'll divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for them. Would you pray with me now as we get ready to take the cup? Lord, again, we come before you so much more intent to pray than we were even when we started. It's how worship and singing and prayer and Bible reading go. We're more intent because we've whet the appetite. So, Father, we come before you knowing without the shedding of the blood, there is no remission of sin. If we come away with anything from the Old Testament, we understand the sinfulness of sin. With the millions of animals that were shed that could never take away sin, but gave us the picture of how bad it really is. Help us to have that view. It's good to know that as we begin this week. Remember how dreadfully sinful sin is, that we avoid it. We renew our minds and not be conformed to the world. Be transformed. Present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to you, which is our reasonable service of worship. So, Father, we thank you that we can do that. We know that we derive all of our hope, all of it, from the shed blood of Jesus and his resurrection. It's the only thing we cling to. We have no goodness in and of ourselves, only what you have done in us. And so, Father, we thank you today for renewal, for a closeness, for a fellowship, for the benefit that you intended from this time around the table. And we give you praise and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. First Corinthians 11.25, in the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Please take the cup. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Matthew 26, 29, I say to you, Jesus says, I'll not drink this fruit of the vine from now on until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I'm coming back. You're going to see me again. We'll do this again. And then Matthew 26, verse 30 says, they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus went on to fulfill the reason for his birth and his life to pay for our sins with his blood. I'd like you to stand if you would to sing the song we started with. Just that first uh, chorus in verse, uh, the doxology, it goes like this. It goes, praise God from as we lift up praise to the Father. Thank you for being with us today. It's our joy to worship together with you. You can connect with us again, as Jason uh, told you at the beginning, right there on the seat back. Let us know how we can serve you, pray for you, minister to you. 
be a joy to get to know you. Uh, folks who are regularly here, look around. If you see a new face, make sure they get welcome before you talk to your friends, all right, so that we can make sure they know we appreciate their, their time here, all right? We'll see you guys next week, Lord willing.